So I think if you just chase that thing that like you feel incredibly passionate about and don't stop till you get there, it'll pay dividends because once you get there, doing all the hard work will feel like nothing. When you were in grade school, some librarian probably told you not to judge a book by its cover. Then he or she probably went on to tell you how you shouldn't judge people by their proverbial covers because we're all so complex and on and on. Seems like good enough advice, right? The only problem is everyone judges books by their covers. In a study, Dr. Martin Hilbert at the University of California at Davis worked on calculating the amount of information humans process. He estimates we're bombarded by the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of content every single day. If we didn't develop a way to figure out what's worth paying attention to, we'd spend months in the toothpaste aisle at the grocery store comparing anti-cavity claims and being mesmerized by foil packaging. With such a small window to catch someone's attention, what you call yourself becomes important. This need is amplified for startups. It's hard to gain traction if people can't remember what you're called. The name, therefore, is often the first thing anyone will come in contact with. If you love the way this sounds, it's because I'm reading from my next guest's book called Don't Call It That. Without further ado, here he is. My name is Eli Altman. I'm the creative director of 100 Monkeys. Uh, we're a naming and writing studio in Berkeley, California. Great. I just wanted to share with people who are tuning in. The reason why we're talking is because of, I think, a mutual fan, Zach Shemais, introduced me to you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Zach? Um, I mean, just uh, as, as well as you can know people on the Internet, I guess. <laughs> well, that's the way the world is working. More of my friends or connections are made through the Internet than they are in real life. And then I yeah. get to meet them someday. It's a, it's a new feeling, but I'm, uh, I'm OK with it. You're OK. All right. And so I think I went on on your site and it said something like you're about uh, 12 people. Is that right? Or something like uh, that? We're a bit smaller than that. We're like eight. Eight. OK. And that the the company was originally started by your dad, Danny. So I have lots of questions about this, being that it's not that often that I meet uh, multi generational creatives, where yeah. you get to see the template of potentially who you're going to become in life. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with your dad. What was that like growing up with him? Um, it was great. I mean, w you know, there was never like any sort of pressure or anything to do this, which I think is probably a large part of why I ended up being attracted to it. Um, also cause it just sort of seemed like he always loved his job. Um, so that tends to be a, a good sign, but I don't know with, with naming specifically, it was sort of like the type of thing that, you know, if he was working on a cool project, we would just come up with names like around the dinner table or on a long car ride. Um, and you know, I'm sure most of the stuff like me and my brother came up with was garbage, but you knew it was good if you wrote it down. Um, so that was kind of like always the test, uh, to, <laughs> to come up with something decent enough for him to write it down. Mm, that's a good test. So would he share with you the brief or kind of the things he was working on and then invite you to come in to just pitch ideas? Is that Not really. I mean, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot more of like a, you know, we're naming like 
this toy for FAO shorts or like this type of, you know, uh, like farm or, you know, it's like a bunch, this was like pre, you know, this is like dial up internet time. Right. So it's not all startups and, and things like that. Um, but you know, we just kind of get a little background information, maybe give us some, uh, some, you know, refinements or something like that. But mm-hmm. I mean, this started when we were pretty young. I mean, we were doing this, like I was still living in San Rafael. So it was like in, in probably like first, second grade. Oh, wow. So you're, you're introduced to the naming concept as an idea or as a profession pretty early on in your life. Yeah. And how do you think that might have impacted you? Because I have to be honest, it's, I've lived most of my life not knowing anything about what my mom and dad do. They, they disappeared in, in the morning and came back at night and yep. then they would do family stuff. And titles were thrown around, but I had really no true understanding of what it is that they did. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that just came from um, my my dad working from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he had his office in the house and he worked, you know, sort of, he, I'm sure he got most of his work done when uh, when I was at school or whatever, but uh, he would work in the evenings and things like that. So just kind of like if you're wandering around the house, one of the rooms you could walk in. Um, and so I think I just kind of got got more exposure that way. Mm. Now, I know what it looks like when a designer is at work. You see things moving around in uh, some kind of design program. What does it look like when a writer's thinking of a, a name for a company or a product? <laughs> um, it's it's probably not so visually engaging. It's like, uh, <laughs> you know, you either have like text edit open or, I mean, you know, now with all these like web resources and things like that, mm-hmm. everyone like Wikipedia or something. But, um, you know, it's like a lot of notepads and pens. Uh, there's like, you know, uh, like probably at least 20 pens in every room in the house. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just looking around the room in my office right now where we're talking and I easily have more pens than that in this room. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's like really simple, really simple tools here. Um, you know, not, not something where like research aside, uh, technology had like a significant impact. Mm. Now, I, I may be influenced by the photo that I saw of your dad on the site, where behind <laughs> him is a great bookcase. So I imagine tons of books and an old typewriter. And then maybe a scene out of A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, where you see post-it notes everywhere. It's almost like he's mapping out his mind, just thinking <laughs> of things. And, and you, as a young boy, walks in. It's like, oh, my God. And the wide-angle lens and the camera dollies in and just looks around the room. But I guess it's more text edit and, and notepads, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, there are, you know, books everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially like pre-internet, there was a ton of, you know, print resources, which we still use a lot because um, you'd be surprised how much of this stuff hasn't made it onto the internet. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of, it's a literary world. I mean, I think most people come to naming via writing of some sort. At least mm-hmm. that's kind of what we look for um, when when we're hiring people. Um, writing skills, reading a lot, uh, those things tend to uh, make for good namers. Mm. And when, when you're experiencing all this, did you know then that this is what you're gonna be ultimately doing or did you kind of just explore your own thing and come back to, to, to naming? Oh yeah, not at all. I. Um, you know, I I was 
pretty involved in kind of like, uh, you know, art, did like a bunch of studio art and design. Um, I went to university for design um, and and kind of, you know, was a, a halfway decent, would be generous um, graphic designer for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like working at, at design firms, it, it seemed like where I could be most valuable ended up being, you know, writing and naming again, because, you know, they had these things as like components of projects and, um, you know, nobody with that specific skill set. So I kind of like tried to go in a different direction and then like got funneled right back to where I started. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to you after you graduated university as being a halfway decent designer? Where'd you wind up and how long did that take before you wound up back at the, at the agency? Yeah, well, halfway decent, to be clear, is generous. Like, I was slightly less than halfway decent. <laughs> that would be- That's like a, a low C minus? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I passed. Okay. Um, but not by much. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, um, I was working for uh, a few German design firms with San Francisco offices. I was really lucky that I graduated uh, college in, in 2007 and not 2008. Um, I had, oh, my like, gosh job offers which you know my friends graduating the next year did not have the same situation so mm-hmm. um you know pure luck in, in graduating on time i guess but uh you know <clears throat> it was uh it was nice i mean i got to sort of immerse myself in the environment i know like one of the main issues people have with like design schools is that they don't get kind of enough like you know professional practice don't get to deal with you know, briefs and clients and meetings and sort of all these things. So I really enjoyed kind of getting involved. But I mean, the the main thing I found was that like the the skill level of all of the designers I was surrounded with was like so incredible. Um, I was I was thoroughly impressed by uh, by the work that they were all doing and sort of simultaneously being like, well, one, I'm like, I'm nowhere near that level, and I could either, you know, just really kind of uh, dig in and give everything I got to, to kind of getting somewhere in that vicinity. Um, or, you know, I could figure out another way that I could be valuable here. Um, and, you know, while writing, naming all these things like play roles in projects, there weren't really like processes in place, um, to, to sort of make those things happen in an efficient manner. Um, and so I, I just ended up doing a lot more writing, um, and I was sort of supported and, and kind of reinforced in that way. Um, and, you know, as someone who's, who's like just out of school, you know, I think making a valuable contribution, that was like the most important thing to me relative to sort of, um, you know, making beautiful design or, or something like that. I just like, I wanted to play an important role in the company. And to me, that just sort of seemed like the, the path there. Mm. Uh, you're, you're, you're touching on a bunch of different things here. I, I wanted, so for me personally, when I found design, I knew this is it. This is all of who I'm going to be. I'm going to pour all my heart and soul and energy into it. And there's a lot of people in the creative community who aren't, aren't as fortunate. And you're talking about that a little bit where yeah. you, you had the level of self-awareness to say, gosh, I'm just not as good as some of these people. So I need to find my own lane. What? Mm-hmm. What uh, what tips or advice might you have, and like, how did it feel for you, and and how does one overcome that and say, look, I could be really strong here, and this is really who I am versus that other person that I'm trying to be. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question and like a really tough line to find. Um, and, you know, I would I would kind of not feel comfortable like telling somewhere else exactly like where that line is for them. Um, I, I think it really does have to do primarily with how passionate you are about what you're doing. Um, for me, like, and I know this, you know, now like being on the other side of it, which I, you know, I might not have known then, but it's like, um, I, I'm very passionate about naming and writing, like in the same way that, you know, if you're working on a, on a design project or identity or something like that, and you're just like so deep in it that you don't know, you know, where the hours went and you forget to eat and you do all these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the feeling, right? The feeling when you're, you're sort of so engrossed in what you're doing that all the other stuff sort of just falls away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen to me with design. Um, I still love it and am engaged with it and love design history and seeing kind of what people are doing. And we work with designers like every week and I I really enjoy those collaborations a lot. Um, But, you know, for me, that kind of level of passion and engagement came a lot more when I was writing um, and when I was working on naming. It's something where like, you know, if I like walk down the aisles of a grocery store it's like I'm not even really thinking about like the you know the food on the shelves. I'm just looking at all of the names and mm-hmm. right on the packaging and seeing how they're talking about what they're doing and you know what decisions they had to make to get there. Um, and I just kind of default to engaging with stuff on that level, mm-hmm. which is probably annoying for the people I'm with. But like that's just kind of a that's the level of engagement that I found. So I think if you just chase that thing that like you feel incredibly passionate about and don't stop till you get there it'll pay dividends because once you get there doing all the hard work will feel like nothing that's great so there's a probably a a period of time of feeling really uncomfortable that this thing that you thought you're going to do winds up being something else and there's that migration of talent away or skill and focus away from that thing and building the the version of you that you think you need to be yeah you said something there was a really good tip in there is that maybe the things that you obsess over in life are the things that you should pursue. Because mm-hmm. I don't have yeah. that same addiction. I'm not walking through stores looking at names. And now you just <laughs> gave me an idea. Maybe that's what I need to do as well, just to be more cognizant of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> we hear so much like in school about you know being well rounded, um, and I think to you know to a degree that's valuable. Um, you know, you want to be decent at arithmetic. You want to understand the basic principles of physics um but you know when it comes to picking something that you're spending the majority of your time on um having that kind of deep level of engagement that passion for it are you know those things are crucial um and that's not to say that there isn't diversity in it i mean we name you know different things constantly our our project cycle you know is, is typically like three to six weeks um, on average. So we're, you know, moving through all of these kind of fields and learning about different products and new ideas and, you know, and everything like that. And so it it is constantly changing. Um, you know, but the way that I engage with it is fairly consistent. Um, and that allows me to sort of, you know, to use your phrase, stay in my lane and like do what I am really passionate about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, what was it like working at Meta Design? Because I was reading that you spent some time uh, after school at Meta Design. Yeah, um, Meta was cool. I mean, that was like kind of where I uh, I got a lot of my design firm experience. I mean, it, when I was there, it was maybe a there's like 
probably mid-30s number of people there, um, all just kind of wonderful, incredibly bright, engaging, friendly people who were, you know, really happy to, like, show me the ropes. And I'm still friends with a lot of people that, um, you know, that I met uh, working there. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I really loved being in that environment. Um, I, I was very grateful for, for that experience and, you know, grateful for, for sort of seeing that, you know, or for having people around me who allowed me to, to kind of have impact in the way that I was best suited to doing it. Um, you know, I think people there could have like, you know, the creative director, Matt Rollinson, who's now at, at ammunition, um, or he was, sorry, he was the, the CEO, Brett Wickens, the creative director, um, you know, both people I stay in touch with today. Um, and you know, I was just, I, I was, uh, lucky that, that they didn't sort of like, um, you know, force me back into that graphic design lane. We're really, you know, just as concerned as I was about like finding the way that I could have the greatest impact. Um, and so I, uh, I guess I, I look back fondly on that experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want to jump into the book and the reason why we're talking, um, you have a book called don't call it that. I, I believe yeah. this is the second edition of the book. Indeed. And is there a third edition in the works? Um, I'm actually working on a different book right now. We can, we can talk about that later, but, uh, uh, I'll, I, I imagine it's something I'll revisit at some point. Yeah, that's fair to say. Okay. Now I, I love the book. It's, it's written in, 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 in the kind of style of books that I like, which is highly actionable. Uh, there are exercises and many of them in there that kind of share your process. Tell me what motivated you to write the book in the first place? Um, the thing that got me there initially was that we get a lot of like inquiries and people reaching out at a hundred monkeys who, who kind of want naming help and we don't have the time or, or bandwidth to, you know, to do anything about it. Um, you know, especially for, for people with, you know, with smaller budgets. And so, um, I wanted to make something for those people, um, people who sort of see the, the value in naming and understand how it can be powerful, how it can help them get their business off the ground. Um, but you know, maybe aren't like allocating a substantial budget to, you know, to naming or to their identity or, or to anything like that. Um, so really for me, my, my initial, um, path into it was just trying to like design something for that audience. I see. Well, that's very interesting because now I'm going to throw a theory at you. So I was, <laughs> I was reading this book, right? And yeah. I was thinking it, it, um, it does something quite interesting in that it tells you, it helps the client to get rid of all their bad ideas first. You go through these exercises like just come up with dumb names or names that are generic or whatever. Yeah. So in the process of doing that, it almost primes your potential client to come and work with you with the proper mindset. So that you yeah. don't have to convince them like, okay, so you tried those and those are stupid, right? <laughs> and that's the battle a lot of creative people have. And I wish there were an equivalent for this for graphic design where let's get rid of all the bad stuff, the cliches or just things that are not going to work so we can get the real work done. That was my theory. And I was thinking, man, that's genius. I need to <laughs> write a book where clients basically self-select by going through the process and then they arrive at us ready to do the work and to, to realize how valuable it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I think to me process is like the most crucial element mm -hmm. of that, that, you know, we sort of, we always with naming specifically like work through our process and, and, and kind of 
know all of the steps where, you know, because, because we have that consistency in our approach, you know, we know all of the questions we get asked. We know the places where it can go off the rails. We know the things that clients have the most difficulty with, right? Mm -hmm. And so by running into those things on a regular basis, kind of put me in a position to be able to call all of those things out specifically and just sort of work through, okay, well, what's, you know, what's our best approach there? Um, and so, you know, I think the book kind of reflects a lot of those learnings um, and, you know, my best shot at like, okay, we get a ton of people who want names that are like descriptive or names that fit in with, you know, with the competition or things like that. So why, like, you know, what's my best shot at like why that's a bad idea? Mm -hmm. um, and how can I help someone understand that themselves, which is, I think, kind of where the exercises come in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely didn't um, intentionally use it as a way to prime clients. Um, <laughs> my, my sort of thought is like, well, you know, if they can afford to have us do it, mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, they'll, they'll kind of just want to take the weight off their shoulders and, and do it that way. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it definitely has happened. Um, I do have clients who read the book. Um, and, uh, that's cool. I, I think, you know, it does, um, kind of at least get them in tune with like our philosophy and, and how we approach it. Right. I'm a big believer in process myself and to make that process as transparent to your potential audience as possible. It does sure. a couple of wonderful things like your, your intent, your motivation behind it was pure and genuine in that you wanted to educate and give the tools to people who couldn't afford it knowing that if they wanted to buy the book and, and do the exercises that name themselves, that they weren't actually in a place where they were considering you. So that also helped to qualify the people who were actually going to call you. Sure. And that's yeah. lovely. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one thing, it's, it's kind of a big thing that I, I don't touch on at all in the book is kind of like um, dealing with bureaucracy, um, you know, managing a process through different levels of decision makers. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's like, it, it's kind of, it, there's a good split there, right? Because if you're doing this on your own or with a partner, like you don't really have to deal with all that stuff. Um, and so that's nice, but the majority of our clients do. Um, and, and, you know, in those situations, it's like, I, you know, naming or the creative part of the process ends up being somewhere in the like 15 to 20% range of what we're doing. Um, and the majority is really around, um, like, uh, efficient and equitable group decision-making, mm -hmm. um, which is like, that's, you know, when you get into it, like that's, that's the tough part. So do you have some strategies that you can share with us and, and realizing that now people who are, are pretty new to the professional world of design and working with large clients, they're probably yeah. scratching their head right now. Like, what is he talking about? <laughs> so just to, for me to encapsulate here. 15% of the work that you do is actually the creative stuff. And then 85% is helping the client come to the realization that what you did was the way to go. Yeah, I mean, that's like my Yogi Berra estimate. But, right. um, you know, yeah, it's it's the, um, you know, getting the client to a place where they're ready to, to kind of receive solid creative work and, and you know, assess it in a, in a good way where your motivations are aligned, where... Um, you know, you both kind of want the same thing and are clear about the, the way to get it. Um, but yeah, when you're dealing with bigger corporations, it's, it's not like, you know, you have probably all of these C-level people who um, have veto power over what you're doing, but who aren't directly involved in the process. Mm -hmm. And so managing that 
kind of decision making and, and equipping the people you know who you're working with to help move work through their you know corporate environment um, ends up being just as crucial to the success of a project as you know just designing something perfectly right because I mean you have this thing in your head where maybe it's like well you know if I just create the perfect identity system um, and it, it's you know does every single thing that the client's looking for and addresses all of these problems elegantly um, that they're just gonna you know they're just gonna look at it and be like amazing perfect you nailed it um, and that's just not what happens at all ever <laughs> you're shattering um, a lot of dreams right now <laughs> All right, kids, listen up. That never happens. And I was just thinking about something. Uh, I, I I saw on your site that you named uh, Adobe Atmos, and I thought that was genius. It's brilliant. It's simple. It's so natural. It seems obvious, and, yeah. and, unless you're doing it yourself. And I was thinking, if you presented that name to a group of people, like, oh, yeah, duh, I could come up with that. So why don't you work on something that's clever or something <laughs> that's unique or different, you know? And, and then that name then gets destroyed. And a lot of people have this reaction, like when you when you make a logo or something, like oh anybody could type that in. Well, yeah. not anybody did, and nobody. I, I did that, and you came up with this. So, I, I don't think I'm alone here. If you came out with a book on managing the design or decision makers, let me let me rephrase that. If you came <laughs> out with a book about managing decision makers, I think there would be pent up demand for that right now. <laughs> Can you create that for us? I'll, uh, I'll take it into consideration. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up this one I'm working on. I'm looking for something to do next. So uh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. All right. Um, I, I think that would be lovely because that's that's the battle, right? How do you get good ideas to survive the brutal process of committees? Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, when, when we all like look at work, you know, especially when I was, you know, when I was younger, when I was in school and I'm sort of looking at, um, you know, these projects on brand new or something like that. And it's like, oh, here's the new city identity. And I look at it like, oh, come on. Like, that's awful. Like, that's what they ended up with. Mm -hmm. and it's like, you're, we're assessing this work as if, you know, the design firm just created it on their own um, and didn't have to deal with like, you know, huge amounts of, of client input at various different points and, you know, mood changes and, you know, swings and decision makers and like all of these things that really happen. It's like we sort of, we we kind of give all of the credit and all of the blame to the designers in these situations, which, you know, I, I guess it, it could be worse. I mean, you could just be like totally obscured in the background, but you know, in reality, all of these things are collaborations. Right. Um, and, and so getting the person you're working with to a point where they're assessing your work in a, you know, in a productive way that yields quality work, um, that's, you know, often more of the battle than just creating something that looks awesome. Before we continue, here's John Roth. Heyo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the pro membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. 
Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. So for me personally, uh, as somebody who's been in the commercial making business and one who, who has judged work, it is amazing to me. Huge respect to anybody that's ever able to get something done that's really good. If you see something on air or in print or a name or, or a mark that somebody's created and it's yeah. survived that process, like those of us that are on the inside just tip a hat to you. And it's like, wow, you, you got that radical idea approved. You were able to push the envelope and the clients agreed. Amazing. Yeah, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And like, that's my thought when I see that stuff, not like, oh, that's really cool. It's like, wow, you got them to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> Which is no easy feat. No, no, not at all. Okay, I want to circle back to the book for one second because there's a lot of people who probably haven't picked up the book. Uh, let's just yeah. assume you're listening to the podcast. It's called Don't Call It That. It's written by Eli Altman. I have questions about the publication and the distribution, all that stuff, but I do want to read a couple of the exercises from the book real quick sure. for you. The first thing uh, in, in, in chapter two is an exercise is write down your main idea behind your brand in one sentence or phrase. And I thought, okay, that was cool. But being a little cynical and analytical, I was thinking, yeah, you see, you can't write that now, can you? You have no idea what you stand for. So that's test one. Look, if you can't reduce down what it is that you're about in a sentence, you're in trouble. And therefore, you may need help. Number two, this one seems pretty simple. Come up with 15 or so bad names. And in doing so, you get all the, the bad stuff out of your system. And you're, you're talking about doing things that are obvious or generic that have no personality whatsoever, right? Yeah. And you call them like they're descriptive. They just describe what you do. And then, then you tell them again in exercise three, write down some of those descriptive names. Let's get it all out of the system. And I love that. I'm not going to read more from it, but that's pretty cool. And I, I like that you're able to sum up your process in such a very simple, easy to process, easy to digest way. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of creative work is dealing with these sort of deceptively simple questions mm-hmm. uh, that you ask anyone, well, you know, write down what the idea is behind your business in one sentence. Um, you know, you could ask like 10 people at an organization and get 10 different answers there. Uh, and, and so, you know, getting to a point where everybody is clear on on sort of what the most important thing is or what you're about is crucial, especially when it comes to naming, because, you know, a name is like such a small package, right? It's like a word, two words. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't have the ability within that format to convey an incredibly complex answer. Um, you really have to distill it down and make that point sharp. Um, because, you know, the name's really just the introduction, right? It's the way that people get in. We do all of this triage every single day, looking at tons of brands that we very quickly and, you know, often without conscious thought decide what we want to pay attention to and what we don't. And, you know, that's where a name is most powerful. Um, it's not about like drawing this circle around, uh, you know, all of the, uh, activities your business could do or perfectly describing what it is, you, you don't really have the room to do that with the form factor. And so trying to do it tends to yield really bad results. Um, and so, you know, getting people to the point where they can quickly and succinctly explain, you know, this is what it is. Uh, I think kind of 
gets them a lot of the way there to being able to, to kind of put a name on it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's something that you advise companies not to do, which is not to mash up their names. Don't invent words. I'm curious because uh, when I talk to attorneys, they're like, yeah, a, a made up name is great because it's something that's highly trademarkable. Attorneys love made up words. Um, that that is totally true. Um, and you know, they, they love them because they're the most protectable from their point of view. Um, you know, the problem is, uh, you know, lawyers tend to not be the most creative people. Um, and I, I put that <laughs> politely cause I work with a lot of lawyers on a regular basis and, and, uh, you know, they bring a lot of value to, to what we do because we obviously want to make sure that, um, you know, people are allowed to use these names. Um, but, you know, it, it just kind of approaches the problem from a very defensive point of view, when in reality, like, um, when you invent a word, it really has minimal to no kind of mental anchors for people. Um, memorability on made up words is really bad. Uh, and unless you have an insane marketing budget to kind of make people remember your sort of like Xfinity type creation, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. And so you might have total right to use that name and, and you know, clear trademark and everything. But uh, it takes a ton of energy, time, effort, marketing money. You know, it's expensive um, and <laughs> time consuming to get people to remember uh, a word you invented, whereas words that already exist either in English or other languages or have stories behind them, even if they're more esoteric, interesting, obscure words, um, you know, those hold anchors for people because even if they don't know the definition, they think, huh, like, what does that mean? And they engage with them in a way, um, whereas like words that are invented are typically very easy to see that they're invented off the bat. And so they strike you as an invented word, right? It's like when you see the name like Verizon, you don't think like, oh, that's like vertical next to horizon or, you know, whatever that is. Um, and so I'm just going to like automatically place this company at the intersection of those two words. Like that doesn't happen. It just kind of is like, oh, that's what it is. And it kind of is just out of your brain as fast as it went in. So you're saying that people in a way give uh, the audience too much credit for trying to decipher and figure out the meaning that you see it and it hits you and then you walk away unless you spend a gazillion dollars promoting and marketing explaining that that name it's not that they give the audience too much credit uh, it's that they think that what they do is too important mm. um i think the biggest issue that people run into is drastically overestimating the amount that people care about what you do okay um, you know, we run into so many brands every single day. Like, and I get that if you work for one of these companies, it's like your day is primarily driven by one of these brands. So, you know, it, that kind of dissonance where it's like incredibly important and central to you, you know, marketing person at company X, mm -hmm. um, but to your audience, it occupies such an infinitesimally small portion of their day um, that, you know, it, it just doesn't rise to that level for them unless you really kind of make it engaging or interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I think really though, like a lot of these people end up not giving their audiences any credit at all by sort of saying that like, oh, well, if you pick this word that's like esoteric or hard to define, um, that like, well, they're not gonna know what that means. 
And more than that, they're going to be insulted that we attempted to use a word that they didn't know what that, you know, what it meant. It's like, give your audience some credit. I mean, you know, a lot of people look upwards when they don't know what they mean or would say, oh, OK, that seems like an intelligent company if they, you know, if they're <laughs> using, uh, you know, using some cool vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, yeah, I actually think that people don't give their audience enough credit. I think you just wrote the argument for next time when my clients raise an issue like this. So this is perfect. Um, okay, so I, I got a couple of things. Uh, do you guys, is this book self-published? Uh, no, it's not. Um, work with uh, Extracurricular Press, which is, um, you know, a, a small kind of like art and design focused publisher in, uh, in San Francisco. Oh, I see. I assumed that you guys did it because, all right, so I have some questions. When I ordered the book... <laughs> I think sure. I ordered it through Amazon or maybe through the site. I can't remember. But I get this package and it's got stickers. It's got notes and it's got bookmarks and all kinds of stuff. It felt like it was a, a highly personalized thing with a yeah. note inside. It's just, how, how does that happen? Like, hey, we, uh, we are very grateful for our audience. Um, and, you know, I, I think we just kind of want to, delight at that level and give people a, a, a cool experience you know it's always nice to receive something in the mail and i think if you you take that up a notch and really kind of try to um you know own that and create a cool experience there that a lot is possible um and you know that's all down to to uh to brian at uh, extracurricular who who runs it brian scott um you know who's a designer and uh, an incredibly talented one at that um, who I, I partner with a lot, um, and yeah, just kind of uh, I don't know. Important to to keep our swag game up. Well, it is up really high. I, I have to <laughs> admit, I buy lots of books. This is the first time I've received one where I thought, I wonder if the author actually put all this stuff together just for me. I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> experience, right? Like all this stuff spills out. There's a poster and there's a note in there. Like who who wrote the note? <laughs> I mean, I was like, was this made by a machine or I'm impressed either way because it does feel like a no, little no. gift that you get in the mail. No machine, all, all human done. Oh. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that's that's one of the reasons why, like, well, you know, when I wrote the first edition of the book, I was kind of looking at publishers and, um, you know, considering that the creative community is is a big audience um, for me and for the book, like I, I didn't want to, you know, give all of the creative control to a, a publisher who was just going to do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Um, like that wasn't a, an acceptable solution for me. And it's like, on one level, I was really happy that like, you know, real like business book publishers and stuff like that were, were interested. Cause that's, you know, I think that, that it's tough to get there. Um, and while I was kind of honored that there was interest, I needed to ensure that the end product was something that I was proud of. Um, and I just didn't know if I could get to, you know, get to there with a a kind of traditional publisher. Um, and so, you know, that's where extracurricular came in and, you know, the, the process of designing the book and everything is like very collaborative. Um, and engaging. We brought in uh, Miguel Reyes from Commercial Type to do kind of all of the lettering for the book, um, and he he killed it uh, as as always. Um, so you know, just kind of having more control and ownership over like the execution, really getting to work collaboratively with designers is something that 
um, a lot more comfortable with than just kind of blindly handing it off to, you know, some publisher in New York and be like, cool, do what you want to do with it. Right. Well, if, if uh, I ever thought about doing a book, you just kind of uh, raised the bar. I was like, damn it. You can't now just put a book uh, out there and just ship it to somebody. You, you got to meet Eli at his game here. So well done. Well played. Nice. All right. A couple other questions here. Uh, sure. When you work on a name, how do you know when it's done? Like, how do you know that's the one? Oh, you don't. Um, that's that's how. Um, because, <laughs> uh, because, look, I mean, you know, it takes – it takes so many options to get to something final, right? Like for a given project, it's like, we're probably developing, you know, or like committing to writing somewhere over 500 names to be conservative. And then we're, you know, we're doing internal screening on them, doing, you know, intellectual property screening on them, um, presenting, narrowing. It's like, if I got attached to any of these things too early on, I, I would have, you know, burnt out a long time ago. Um, getting attached is not, uh, not helpful. Um, you know, there are parts and, you know, points in the process where it's like very important. And we, you know, we think it's crucial to, you know, put our cards on the table and not just kind of be, uh, you know, like totally neutral about it and say, look, like these are what we think are the strongest options here. Um, but you know, you can't get attached. Um, there are names that you just sort of really are rooting for that happens sometimes, but, uh, I think it's, it's really important to, to kind of, um, you know, not get overly invested in options before you know that one, that they're like gettable, right. <laughs> that, right. you know, this company could actually own this name, um, you know, uh, or, you know, that they pass any of the other, you know, myriad tests that, that names need to go through to make sure that, um, you can use them without, uh, getting into trouble, running into serious competitive issues, you know, searchability, any of the other things we look for. Mm. Before you get to that phase of it, when you're dealing with 500 names, how do you even begin to, to whittle the playing field down so that you can get it to a manageable 20 or 30 names, then, then you can begin that search. Um, I think, you know, so everybody here works on names. So I think that quantity comes from, you know, having a, a full team of people working on it and putting a lot of energy into it. Um, but then, you know, the people who are on a given project are the ones who are, are tasked with, really narrowing that list down. And that has a lot to do with getting to know the client and really understanding like what's going to work for them, what's not, what they're going to want to see. I mean, we use names to test out a lot of things. Um, you know, it's like the same way that, uh, if you ask someone like, Hey, what kind of music do you listen to? Um, it's a bad question, right? Cause it yields bad answers. Mm -hmm. uh, people say like, Oh, anything but country or I'd like a little bit anything or, you know, something like that. But if you play a song and say, well, okay, what do you like about this song? Like, how does it hit you? What does it remind you of? Um, you get good information. And so, you know, at least, you know, especially early in the process, um, that's really what we're trying to do with naming is like presenting a, a wide enough array where we can really get good feedback on specific options in order to narrow our own focus. Um, and so, it's an incredibly subjective process, but we do everything we can to make it more objective for people, you know, keep it focused on the audience, 
make it so people are, aren't just kind of having that first gut reaction to work. That's mm-hmm. just kind of like, I like it. I don't like it that everybody is going to have. And so if everybody has it. It's not really a strong basis for making a decision just by like kind of show of hands, which one's the best option. Um, so, you know, we like to have objectives going in where we're sort of saying, okay, what are the most important things to communicate? Um, and so we're really trying to assess names based on those criteria then obviously all the kind of legal cultural tests that we, we run them through after. Um, but, uh, you know, you need to have some sort of objective criteria going into it. Otherwise it's just kind of like, you know, competitive opinions, uh, which isn't really a good environment for creative work. Right. Okay. Now here, here's a, here's a, maybe a difficult question, but what's a good name worth? Like how do you begin to price some of this stuff? (laughs) um you know a lot of it just has to do with the variables of a project um you know i I think um at uh, like on the base level the question of what a good name is worth i think has a lot to do with the the kind of situation that you're in how competitive your environment is how Mm -hmm. strong your offering is Um, you know, how important is it for you to get off the ground quickly? Um, because those are areas where names bring a ton of value. Um, you know, in terms of like pricing and and kind of like how we approach stuff like that, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the client organization and, and what that, you know, back to that kind of bureaucracy and like, you know, structure of a business, how many different layers of approval are we going through? How many countries are we testing this name in? You know, like all of those kind of practical realities have serious effect on the amount of work that we need to do in order to present quality options. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about working with, you know, um, like two people who are, who are, you know, starting something new, uh, who aren't particularly concerned about, you know, um, passing like cultural screening, uh, in Asia and, you, you know, uh, don't need a pure.com then like that process is, can be pretty efficient. Um, you know, once you start to include global clearance, you know, a certain level like trademarking in like five different classes, which is like kind of how the USPTO organizes these things. Um, and, you know, had multiple layers of, of kind of decision making, then those processes take us a lot more time. Um, and so that's kind of how, how projects become expensive. Um, but you know, there's a, there's definitely a, a, a quick and easy way and a, a long and hard way. Mm. So for some of the more difficult naming projects where it includes all the things that you're talking about in terms of global clearance, cultural, uh, checking, uh, all that kind of stuff. How long does that process take from beginning to end, typically? I mean, it really depends on what you're defining as the endpoint, um, because you know there's always a, a handoff in there to a client's legal counsel, right? Mm-hmm. That we're not the ones who um, you know who registered the name, because mm-hmm. if we did, it would be a conflict of interest with our clients. Um, that's, you know, the, the client's legal counsel's responsibility. So at some point there's a handoff there, um, you know, depending on if you were including all of those things, it might take us, you know, say six weeks, seven weeks to get to that handoff point. 
Um, sometimes it happens a lot faster, but then, you know, once it's in their lawyer's hands, it, it really just has to do with, you know, their workload. And so I think if you just chase that thing that like you feel incredibly passionate about and don't stop till you get there, it'll pay dividends because once you get there, doing all the hard work will feel like nothing. When you were in grade school, some librarian probably told you not to judge a book by its cover. Then he or she probably went on to tell you how you shouldn't judge people by their proverbial covers because we're all so complex and on and on. Seems like good enough advice, right? The only problem is everyone judges books by their covers. In a study, Dr. Martin Hilbert of the University of California at Davis worked on calculating the amount of information humans process. He estimates we're bombarded by the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of content every single day. If we didn't develop a way to figure out what's worth paying attention to, we'd spend months in the toothpaste aisle at the grocery store comparing anti-cavity claims and being mesmerized by foil packaging. With such a small window to catch someone's attention, what you call yourself becomes important. This need is amplified for startups. It's hard to gain traction if people can't remember what you're called. The name, therefore, is often the first thing anyone will come in contact with. If you love the way this sounds, it's because I'm reading from my next guest's book called Don't Call It That. Without further ado, here he is. My name is Eli Altman. I'm the creative director of 100 Monkeys. Uh, we're a naming and writing studio in Berkeley, California. Great. I just wanted to share with people who are tuning in. The reason why we're talking is because of, I think, a mutual fan, Zach Chimay's introduced me to you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Zach? Um, I mean, just uh, as, as well as you can know people on the Internet, I guess. <laughs> well, that's the way the world is working. More of my friends or connections are made through the Internet than they are in real life. And then I yeah. get to meet them someday. It's a, it's a new feeling, but I'm, uh, I'm OK with it. You're OK. All right. And so I think I went on on your site and it said something like you're about uh, 12 people. Is that right? Something like uh, that? We're a bit smaller than that. We're like eight. Eight. OK. And that the the company was originally started by your dad, Danny. So I have lots of questions about this, being that it's not that often that I meet uh, multi generational creatives, where yeah. you get to see the template of potentially who you're going to become in life. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with your dad. What was that like growing up with him? Um, it was great. I mean, w you know, there was never like any sort of pressure or anything to do this, which I think is probably a large part of why I ended up being attracted to it. Um, also cause it just sort of seemed like he always loved his job. Um, so that tends to be a, a good sign, but I don't know with, with naming specifically, it was sort of like the type of thing that, you know, if he was working on a cool project, we would just come up with names like around the dinner table or on a long car ride. Um, and you know, I'm sure most of the stuff like me and my brother came up with was garbage, but you knew it was good if you wrote it down. Um, so that was kind of like always the test, uh, to, <laughs> to come up with something decent enough for him to write it down. Mm, that's a good test. So would he share with you the brief or kind of the things he was working on and then invite you to come in to just pitch ideas? 
Is that not really. I mean, it was it was a lot. It was a lot more of like a you know we're naming like this toy for FAO Schwartz or like this type of you know uh, like farm or you know it's like a bunch. This was like pre you know this is like dial up internet time right so it's not all startups and and things like that um but you know we just kind of get a little background information maybe give us some uh some you know refinements or something like that but mm-hmm. when this started we were pretty young i mean we were doing this like i was still living in san rafael so it was like in in probably like first second grade Oh wow! So you're you're introduced to the naming concept as an idea or as a profession pretty early on in your life. Yeah. And how do you think that might have impacted you? Because I have to be honest, it's I've lived most of my life not knowing anything about what my mom and dad do. They they disappeared in, in the morning <laughs> and came back at night, and yep. then they would do family stuff, and titles were thrown around, but I had really no true understanding of what it is that they did. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that just came from, um, my, my dad working from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he had his office in the house and he worked, you know, sort of, he, I'm sure he got most of his work done when, uh, when I was at school or whatever, but, uh, he would work in the evenings and things like that. So just kind of like if you're wandering around the house, one of the rooms you could walk in. Um, and so I, I think I just kind of got, got more exposure that way. Mm. Now, I, I know what it looks like when a designer is at work. You see things moving around in uh, some kind of design program. What does it look like when a writer's thinking of a, a name for a company or a product? <laughs> um, it's it's probably not so visually engaging. It's like uh, <laughs> you know, you either have like text edit open, or I mean, you know, now with all these like web resources and things like that, mm-hmm. everyone like Wikipedia or something. But um, you know, it's like a lot of notepads and pens. Uh, there's like, you know, uh, like probably at least 20 pens in every room in the house. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just looking around the room in my office right now where we're talking and I easily have more pens than that in this room. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's like really simple, really simple tools here. Um, you know, not, not something where like research aside, uh, technologies had like a significant impact. Mm. Now, I, I may be influenced by the photo that I saw of your dad on the site, where behind him is a great bookcase, so I imagine tons of books, and an old typewriter, and then maybe a scene out of A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, where you see post-it notes everywhere, it's almost like he's mapping out his mind, just thinking <laughs> of things, and, and you as a young boy walks in, it's like, oh my god, and the wide-angle lens, and the camera dollies in, and just looks around the room, but I guess it's more text edit and, and notepads, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're right. I mean, there are, you know, books everywhere. Um, And, you know, especially like pre-internet, there was a ton of, you know, print resources, which we still use a lot, um, because you'd be surprised how much of this stuff hasn't made it onto the internet. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's a literary world. I mean, I think most people come to naming via writing of some sort, at least Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we look for um, when when we're hiring people, um, writing skills, reading a lot. Uh, those things tend to uh, make for good namers. Mm. And when when you're experiencing all this, did you know then that this is what you're going to be ultimately doing, or did you kind of just explore your own thing and come back to 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 naming? 
Oh yeah, not at all. I, um, you know, I, I was pretty involved in kind of like, uh, you know, art did like a bunch of studio art and design. Um, I went to university for design, um, and, and kind of, you know, was a, uh, halfway decent would be generous, um, graphic designer for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, like working at, at design firms, it, it seemed like where I could be most valuable ended up being, you know, writing and naming again because, you know, they had these things as like components of projects and, um, you know, nobody with that specific skill set. So I kind of like tried to go in a different direction and then like got funneled right back to where I started. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to you after you graduated university as being a halfway decent designer? Where'd you wind up and how long did that take before you wound up back at the, at the agency? Yeah, well, halfway decent, to be clear, is generous. Like, I was slightly less than halfway decent. <laughs> that would be That's like a, a low C minus? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I passed. Okay. Um, but not by much. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I I, um, I was working for uh, a few German design firms with San Francisco offices. I was really lucky that I graduated uh, college in, in 2007 and not 2008. Um, I had, oh, my like, gosh job offers which you know my friends graduating the next year did not have the same situation so mm -hmm. um you know pure luck in, in graduating on time i guess but uh you know it was uh it was nice i mean i got to sort of immerse myself in the environment i know like one of the main issues people have with like design schools is that they don't get kind of enough like you know professional practice don't get to deal with you know, briefs and clients and meetings and sort of all these things. So I really enjoyed kind of getting involved. But I mean, the the main thing I found was that like the the skill level of all of the designers I was surrounded with was like so incredible. Um, I was I was thoroughly impressed by uh, by the work that they were all doing and sort of simultaneously being like, well, one, I'm like I'm nowhere near that level, and I could either, you know, just really kind of uh, dig in and give everything I got to, to kind of getting somewhere in that vicinity. Um, or, you know, I could figure out another way that I could be valuable here. Um, and, you know, while writing, naming all these things like play roles in projects, there weren't really like processes in place um, to, to sort of make those things happen in an efficient manner. Um, and so I, I just ended up doing a lot more writing um, and I was sort of supported and, and kind of reinforced in that way. Um, and, you know, as someone who's, who's like just out of school, you know, I think making a valuable contribution, that was like the most important thing to me relative to sort of, um, you know, making beautiful design or, or something like that. I just like, I wanted to play an important role in the company. And to me, that just sort of seemed like the, the path there. Mm. Um, you're, you're, you're touching on a bunch of different things here. I, I wanted, so for me personally, when I found design, I knew this is it. This is all of who I'm going to be. I'm going to pour all my heart and soul and energy into it. And there's a lot of people in the creative community who aren't, aren't as fortunate. And you're talking about that a little bit where yeah. you had the level of self-awareness to say, gosh, I'm just not as good as some of these people. So I need to find my own lane. What, mm -hmm. What uh, what tips or advice might you have, and like, how did it feel for you, and and how does one overcome that and say, look, I could be really strong here, and this is really who I am, versus that 
other person that I'm trying to be? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question and like a really tough line to find. Um, and, you know, I would I would kind of not feel comfortable like telling somewhere else exactly like where that line is for them. Um, I, I think it really does have to do primarily with how passionate you are about what you're doing. Um, for me, like, and I know this, you know, now like being on the other side of it, which I, you know, I might not have known then, but it's like, um, I, I'm very passionate about naming and writing, like in the same way that, you know, if you're working on a, on a design project or identity or something like that, and you're just like so deep in it that you don't know, you know, where the hours went and you forget to eat and you do all these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the feeling, right? The feeling when you're, you're sort of so engrossed in what you're doing that all the other stuff sort of just falls away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen to me with design. Um, I still love it and am engaged with it and love design history and seeing kind of what people are doing. And we work with designers like every week and I, I really enjoy those collaborations a lot. Um, but you know, for me, that kind of level of passion and engagement came a lot more when I was writing. Um, and w- when I was working on naming, it's something where like, you know, if I like walk down the aisles of a grocery store, it's like, I'm not even really thinking about like the, you know, the food on the shelves. I'm just looking at all of the names and mm-hmm. right on the packaging and seeing how they're talking about what they're doing and, you know, what decisions they had to make to get there. Um, and I just kind of default to engaging with stuff on that level, mm-hmm. which is probably annoying for the people I'm with, but like, that's just kind of, uh, that's the level of engagement that I found. So I think if you just chase that thing that like you feel incredibly passionate about and don't stop till you get there it'll pay dividends because once you get there doing all the hard work will feel like nothing that's great so there's a probably a a period of time of feeling really uncomfortable that this thing that you thought you were going to do winds up being something else and there's that migration of talent away or skill and focus away from that thing and building the the version of you that you think you need to be yeah You, you said something there was a really good tip in there is that maybe the things that you obsess over in life are the things that you should pursue. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have that same addiction. I'm not walking through stores looking at names and now you just gave me an idea. Maybe that's what I need to do as well just to be more cognizant of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we hear so much like in school about, you know, being well-rounded. And I think to, you know, to a degree that's valuable. Um, You know, you want to be decent at arithmetic. You want to, understand the basic principles of physics um but you know when it comes to picking something that you're spending the majority of your time on um having that kind of deep level of engagement that passion for it are you know those things are crucial um and that's not to say that there isn't diversity in it i mean we name you know different things constantly our our project cycle you know is, is typically like three to six weeks Um, on average. So we're, you know, moving through all of these kind of fields and learning about different products and new ideas and, you know, and everything like that. And so it it is constantly changing, um, you know, but the way that I engage with it is fairly consistent. um, And that allows me to sort of, you know, to use your phrase, stay in my lane and like do what I'm really passionate about. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, What was it like working at Meta Design? Because I was reading that you spent some time uh, after school at Meta Design. Yeah. Um, Meta was cool. I mean, that was like kind of where I I got a lot of my 
design firm experience. I mean, it, when I was there, it was maybe a, it was like probably mid thirties number of people there. Um, all just kind of wonderful, incredibly bright, engaging, friendly people who were, you know, really happy to like show me the ropes. And I'm still friends with a lot of people that, um, you know, that I met, uh, working there. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I really loved being in that environment. Um, I, I was very grateful for, for that experience and, you know, grateful for, for sort of seeing that, you know, or for having people around me who allowed me to, to kind of have impact in the way that I was best suited to doing it. Um, you know, I think people there could have like, you know, the creative director, Matt Rollinson, who's now at, at Ammunition, um, or he was, sorry, he was the, the CEO, Brett Wickens, the creative director, um, you know, both people I stay in touch with today. Um, and you know, I was just, I, I was, uh, lucky that, that they didn't sort of like, um, you know, force me back into that graphic design lane. We're really, you know, just as concerned as I was about like finding the way that I could have the greatest impact. Um, and so I, uh, I guess I, I look back fondly on that experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want to jump into the book and the reason why we're talking, um, you have a book called don't call it that. I, I believe yeah. this is the second edition of the book. Indeed. And is there a third edition in the works? Um, I'm actually working on a different book right now. We can we can talk about that later, but uh, uh, I'll, I, I imagine it's something I'll revisit at some point. Yeah, that's fair to say. Okay. Now I, I love the book. It's it's written in in in, in a kind of style of books that I like, which is highly actionable. Uh, there are exercises and many of them in there that kind of share your process. Tell me what motivated you to write the book in the first place. Um. The thing that got me there initially was that we get a lot of like inquiries and people reaching out at 100 Monkeys who, who kind of want naming help and we don't have the time or, or bandwidth to, you know, to do anything about it, um, you know, especially for, for people with, you know, with smaller budgets. And so um, I wanted to make something for those people, um, people who sort of see the the value in naming and understand how it can be powerful, how it can help them get their business off the ground. Um, but you know, maybe aren't like allocating a substantial budget to, you know, to naming or to their identity or, or to anything like that. Um, so really for me, my, my initial, um, path into it was just trying to like design something for that audience. I see. Well, that's very interesting. Cause now I'm going to throw a theory at you. So I was, <laughs> I was reading his book, right? And yeah. I was thinking it it um, it does something quite interesting in that it tells you it helps the client to get rid of all their bad ideas first. You go through these exercises like just come up with dumb names or names that are generic or whatever. Yeah. So in the process of doing that, it almost primes your potential client to come and work with you with the proper mindset. So that you yeah. don't have to convince them like, OK, so you tried those and those are stupid, right? <laughs> and that's the battle a lot of creative people have. And I wish there were an equivalent for this for graphic design where let's get rid of all the bad stuff, the cliches or just things that are not going to work so we can get the real work done. So that was my theory. And I was thinking, man, that's genius. I need to <laughs> write a book where clients basically self-select by going through the process and then they arrive at us ready to do the work and to, to realize how valuable it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I think to me process is like the most crucial element mm -hmm. of that that you know we sort of we always with naming specifically like work through our process and 
and and kind of know all of the steps where you know because because we have that consistency in our approach you know we know all of the questions we get asked we know the places where it can go off the rails we know the things that clients have the most difficulty with right Mm -hmm. and so by running into those things on a regular basis kind of put me in a position to be able to call all of those things out specifically and just sort of work through okay well what's you know what's our best approach there um and so you know i think the book kind of reflects a lot of those learnings um and you know my best shot at like okay we get a ton of people who want names that are like descriptive or names that fit in with you know with the competition or things like that so why like you know what's my best shot at like why that's a bad idea Mm -hmm. Uh, and how can i help someone understand that themselves which is i think kind of where the exercises come in um and so yeah i mean i i I definitely didn't um intentionally use it as a way to prime clients um (laughs) My, my sort of thought is like, well, you know, if they can afford to have us do it, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, they'll, they'll kind of just want to take the weight off their shoulders and, and do it that way. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it definitely has happened. Um, I do have clients who read the book. Um, and uh, that's cool. I, I, I think, you know, it does um, kind of at least get them in tune with like our philosophy and, and how we approach it. Right. I'm a big believer in process myself and to make that process as transparent to your potential audience as possible. It does sure. a couple of wonderful things like your your intent, your motivation behind it was pure and genuine in that you wanted to educate and give the tools to people who couldn't afford it, knowing that if they wanted to buy the book and, and do the exercises that name themselves, that they weren't actually in the place where they were considering you. So that also helped to qualify the people who were actually going to call you. Sure. And that's yeah. lovely. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one thing it's, it's kind of a big thing that I, I don't touch on at all in the book is kind of like um, dealing with bureaucracy, um, you know, managing a process through different levels of decision makers. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's like it, it's kind of it, there's a good split there. Right. Because if you're doing this on your own or with a partner, like you don't really have to deal with all that stuff. Um, and so that's nice, but the majority of our clients do. Um, and and, you know, in those situations, it's like, you know, naming or the creative part of the process ends up being somewhere in the like 15 to 20% range of what we're doing. Um, and the majority is really around, um, like, uh, efficient and equitable group Mm decision-making, um, which is like, that's, you know, when you get into it, like that's, that's the tough part. So do you have some strategies that you can share with us and, and realizing that now people who are, are pretty new to the professional world of design and working with large clients, they're probably yeah. scratching their head right now. Like, what is he talking about? <laughs> so just to, for me to encapsulate here, 15% of the work that you do is actually the creative stuff. And then 85% of it helping the client come to the realization that what you did was the way to go. Yeah. I mean, that's like my Yogi Berra estimate, but, right. um, you know, yeah, it's, it's the, um, you know, getting the client to a place where they're ready to, to kind of receive solid creative work and, and, you know, assess it in a, in a good way where your motivations are aligned, where, um, you know, you both kind of want the same thing and are clear about the, the way to get it. Um, but yeah, when you're dealing with bigger corporations, it's, it's not like, you know, you have probably all of these C-level people who um, have veto power over what you're doing, but who aren't directly involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And so managing that 
kind of decision making and, and equipping the people you know who you're working with to help move work through their you know corporate environment um, ends up being just as crucial to the success of a project as you know just designing something perfectly right because I mean you have this thing in your head where maybe it's like well you know if I just create the perfect identity system um, and it, it's you know does every single thing that the client's looking for and addresses all of these problems elegantly um, that they're just gonna you know they're just gonna look at it and be like amazing perfect you nailed it um, and that's just not what happens at all ever <laughs> you're shattering a lot of dreams right now <laughs> All right, kids, listen up. That never happens. And I was just thinking about something. Uh, I, I I saw on your site that you named uh, Adobe Atmos, and I thought that was genius. It's brilliant. It's simple. It's so natural. It seems obvious, and, yeah. and, unless you're doing it yourself. And I was thinking, uh, if you presented that name to a group of people, like, oh, yeah, duh, I could come up with that. So why don't you work on something that's clever or something <laughs> that's unique or different, you know? And, and then that name then gets destroyed. And a lot of people have this reaction, like when you when you make a logo or something, like oh anybody could type that in. Well, yeah. not anybody did, and nobody. I, I did that, and you came up with this. So, I I don't think I'm alone here. If you came out with a book on managing the design or decision makers, let me let me rephrase that. If you came <laughs> out with a book about managing decision makers, I think there would be pent up demand for that right now. <laughs> Can you create that for us? I'll, uh, I'll take it into consideration. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up this one I'm working on. I'm looking for something to do next. So uh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. All right. Um, I, I think that would be lovely because that's that's the battle, right? How do you get good ideas to survive the brutal process of committees? Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, when, when we all like look at work, you know, especially when I was, you know, when I was younger, when I was in school and I'm sort of looking at, um, you know, these projects on brand new or something like that. And it's like, oh, here's the new city identity. And I look at it like, oh, come on. Like, that's awful. Like, that's what they ended up with. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, we're assessing this work as if, you know, the design firm just created it on their own um, and didn't have to deal with like, you know, huge amounts of, of client input at various different points and, you know, mood changes and, you know, swings and decision makers and like all of these things that really happen. It's like we sort of, we we kind of give all of the credit and all of the blame to the designers in these situations, which, you know, I, I guess it, it could be worse. I mean, you could just be like totally obscured in the background, but you know, in reality, all of these things are collaborations. Right. Um, and, and so getting the person you're working with to a point where they're assessing your work in a, you know, in a productive way that yields quality work, um, that's, you know, often more of the battle than just creating something that looks awesome. Before we continue, here's John Roth. Hey, yo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the pro membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. 
Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. So for me personally, uh, as somebody who's been in the commercial making business and one who, who has judged work, it is amazing to me. Huge respect to anybody that's ever able to get something done that's really good. If you see something on air or in print or a name or, or a mark that somebody's created and it's yeah. survived that process, like those of us that are on the inside just tip a hat to you. And it's like, wow, you, you got that radical idea approved. You were able to push the envelope and the clients agreed. Amazing. Yeah, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And like, that's my thought when I see that stuff, not like, oh, that's really cool. It's like, wow, you got them to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> Which is no easy feat. No, no, not at all. Okay, I want to circle back to the book for one second because there's a lot of people who probably haven't picked up the book. Uh, let's just yeah. assume you're listening to the podcast. It's called Don't Call It That. It's written by Eli Altman. I have questions about the publication and the distribution, all that stuff, but I do want to read a couple of the exercises from the book real quick sure. for you. The first thing uh, in, in, in chapter two is an exercise is write down your main idea behind your brand in one sentence or phrase. And I thought, okay, that was cool. But being a little cynical and analytical, I was thinking, yeah, you see, you can't write that now, can you? You have no idea what you stand for. So that's test one. Look, if you can't reduce down what it is that you're about in a sentence, you're in trouble. And therefore, you may need help. Number two, this one seems pretty simple. Come up with 15 or so bad names. And in doing so, you get all the, the bad stuff out of your system. And you're, you're talking about doing things that are obvious or generic that have no personality whatsoever, right? Yeah. And you call them like they're descriptive. They just describe what you do. And then, then you tell them again in exercise three, write down some of those descriptive names. Let's get it all out of the system. And I love that. I'm not going to read more from it, but that's pretty cool. And I, I like that you're able to sum up your process in such a very simple, easy to process, easy to digest way. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of creative work is dealing with these sort of deceptively simple questions mm-hmm. uh, that you ask anyone, well, you know, write down what the idea is behind your business in one sentence. Um, you know, you could ask like 10 people at an organization and get 10 different answers there. Uh, and, and so, you know, getting to a point where everybody is clear on on sort of what the most important thing is or what you're about is crucial, especially when it comes to naming, because, you know, a name is like such a small package, right? It's like a word, two words. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't have the ability within that format to convey an incredibly complex answer. Um, you really have to distill it down and make that point sharp. Um, because, you know, the name's really just the introduction, right? It's the way that people get in. We do all of this triage every single day, looking at tons of brands that we very quickly and, you know, often without conscious thought decide what we want to pay attention to and what we don't. And, you know, that's where a name is most powerful. Um, it's not about like drawing this circle around, uh, you know, all of the, uh, activities your business could do or perfectly describing what it is, you, you don't really have the room to do that with the form factor. And so trying to do it tends to yield really bad results. Um, and so, you know, getting people to the point where they can quickly and succinctly explain, you know, this is what it is. Uh, I think kind of 
gets them a lot of the way there to being able to to kind of put a name on it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's something that you advise companies not to do, which is not to mash up their names. Don't invent words. I'm curious because uh, when I talk to attorneys, they're like, yeah, a, a made up name is great because it's something that's highly trademarkable. Attorneys love made up words. Um, that that is totally true. Um, and you know, they, they love them because they're the most protectable from their point of view. Um, you know, the problem is, uh, you know, lawyers tend to not be the most creative people. Um, and I, I put that <laughs> politely cause I work with a lot of lawyers on a regular basis and, and, uh, you know, they bring a lot of value to, to what we do because we obviously want to make sure that, um, you know, people are allowed to use these names. Um, but, you know, it, it just kind of approaches the problem from a very defensive point of view, when in reality, like, um, when you invent a word, it really has minimal to no kind of mental anchors for people. Um, memorability on made up words is really bad. Uh, and unless you have an insane marketing budget to kind of make people remember your sort of like Xfinity type creation, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. And so you might have total right to use that name and, and you know, clear trademark and everything. But uh, it takes a ton of energy, time, effort, marketing money. You know, it's expensive um, and <laughs> time consuming to get people to remember uh, a word you invented, whereas words that already exist either in English or other languages or have stories behind them, even if they're more esoteric, interesting, obscure words, um, you know, those hold anchors for people because even if they don't know the definition, they think, huh, like, what does that mean? And they engage with them in a way, um, whereas like words that are invented are typically very easy to see that they're invented off the bat. And so they strike you as an invented word, right? It's like when you see the name like Verizon, you don't think like, oh, that's like vertical next to horizon or, you know, whatever that is. Um, and so I'm just going to like automatically place this company at the intersection of those two words. Like that doesn't happen. It just kind of is like, oh, that's what it is. And it kind of is just out of your brain as fast as it went in. So you're saying that people in a way give uh, the audience too much credit for trying to decipher and figure out the meaning that you see it and it hits you and then you walk away unless you spend a gazillion dollars promoting and marketing explaining that that name. It's not that they give the audience too much credit. Uh, it's that they think that what they do is too important. Mm. Um, I think the biggest issue that people run into is drastically overestimating the amount that people care about what you do. Okay. Um, you know, we run into so many brands every single day, like, and I get that if you work for one of these companies, it's like your day is primarily driven by one of these brands. So, you know, it, that kind of dissonance where it's like incredibly important and central to you, you know, marketing person at company X, mm -hmm. um, but to your audience, it occupies such an infinitesimally small portion of their day um, that, you know, it, it just doesn't rise to that level for them unless you really kind of make it engaging or interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I think really though, like a lot of these people end up not giving their audiences any credit at all by sort of saying that like, oh, well, if you pick this word that's like esoteric or hard to define, um, that like, well, they're not gonna know what that means. 
And more than that, they're going to be insulted that we intended to use a word that they didn't know what that, you know, what it meant. It's like, give your audience some credit. I, I mean, you know, a lot of people look upwards when they don't know what they mean or would say, oh, OK, that seems like an intelligent company if they, you know, if they're <laughs> using, uh, you know, using some cool vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, yeah, I actually think that people don't give their audience enough credit. I think you just wrote the argument for next time when my clients raise an issue like this. So this is perfect. Um, okay, so I, I got a couple of things. Uh, do you guys, is this book self-published? Uh, no, it's not. Um, work with uh, Extracurricular Press, which is, um, you know, a, a small kind of like art and design focused publisher in, uh, in San Francisco. Oh, I see. I assumed that you guys did it because, all right, so I have some questions. When I ordered the book... <laughs> I think sure. I ordered it through Amazon or maybe through the site. I can't remember. But I get this package and it's got stickers. It's got notes and it's got bookmarks and all kinds of stuff. It felt like it was a, a highly personalized thing with a yeah. note inside. It's just how, how does that happen? Like, hey, we, uh, we are very grateful for our audience. Um, and, you know, I, I think we just kind of want to delight at that level and give people a, a, a cool experience you know it's always nice to receive something in the mail and I think if you you take that up a notch and really kind of try to um, you know own that and create a cool experience there that a lot is possible um, and you know that's all down to to uh, to Brian at uh, extracurricular who, who runs it Brian Scott um, you know who's a designer and uh, an incredibly talented one at that um, who I, I partner with a lot. Um, and yeah, just kind of, uh, I don't know, important to, to keep our swag game up. Well, it is up really high. I, I have to <laughs> admit, I buy lots of books. This is the first time I've received one where I thought, I wonder if the author actually put all this stuff together just for me. I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> experience, right? Like all this stuff spills out. There's a poster and there's a note in there. Like who who wrote the note? <laughs> I mean, I was like, was this made by a machine or I'm impressed either way because it does feel like a no, little no. gift that you get in the mail. No machine, all, all human done. Oh. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that's that's one of the reasons why, like, well, you know, when I wrote the first edition of the book, I was kind of looking at publishers and, um, I, you know, considering that the creative community is is a big audience um, for me and for the book, like I, I didn't want to, you know, give all of the creative control to a, a publisher who was just going to do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Um, like that wasn't a, an acceptable solution for me. And it's like, on one level, I was really happy that like, you know, real like business book publishers and stuff like that were, were interested. Cause that's, you know, I think that, that it's tough to get there. Um, and while I was kind of honored that there was interest, I needed to ensure that the end product was something that I was proud of. Um, and I just didn't know if I could get to, you know, get to there with a, a kind of traditional publisher. Um, and so, you know, that's where extracurricular came in and, you know, the, the process of designing the book and everything is like very collaborative. Um, and engaging. We brought in uh, Miguel Reyes from Commercial Type to do kind of all of the lettering for the book. Um, and he, he killed it uh, as, as always. Um, so, you know, just kind of having more control and ownership over like the execution, really getting to work collaboratively with designers is something that 
um, a lot more comfortable with than just kind of blindly handing it off to, you know, some publisher in New York and be like, cool, do what you want to do with it. Right. Well, if, if uh, I ever thought about doing a book, you just kind of uh, raised the bar. I was like, damn it. You can't now just put a book uh, out there and just ship it to somebody. You, you got to meet Eli at his game here. So well done. Well played. <laughs> All right. A couple other questions here. Um, sure. When you're working on a name, how do you know when it's done? Like, how do you know that's the one? Oh, you don't. Um, that's that's how. Um, because, <laughs> uh, because, look, I mean, you know, it takes – it takes so many options to get to something final, right? Like for a given project, it's like we're probably developing, you know, or like committing to writing somewhere over 500 names to be conservative. And then we're, you know, we're doing internal screening on them, doing, you know, intellectual property screening on them, um, presenting, narrowing. It's like, if I got attached to any of these things too early on, I, I would have, you know, burnt out a long time ago. Um, getting attached is not, uh, not helpful. Um, you know, there are parts and, you know, points in the process where it's like very important. And we, you know, we think it's crucial to, you know, put our cards on the table and not just kind of be, uh, you know, like totally neutral about it and say, look, like these are what we think are the strongest options here. Um, but you know, you can't get attached. Um, there are names that you just sort of really are rooting for that happens sometimes, but, uh, I think it's, it's really important to, to kind of, um, you know, not get overly invested in options before you know that one, that they're like gettable, right. <laughs> that, right. you know, this company could actually own this name, um, you know, uh, or, you know, that they pass any of the other, you know, myriad tests that, that names need to go through to make sure that um, you can use them without uh, getting into trouble, running into serious competitive issues, you know, searchability, any of the other things we look for. Mm. Before you get to that phase of it, when you're dealing with 500 names, how do you even begin to to whittle the playing field down so that you can get it to a manageable 20 or 30 names, then, then you can begin that search. Um, I think, you know, so everybody here works on names. So I think that quantity comes from, you know, having a, a full team of people working on it and putting a lot of energy into it. Um, but then, you know, the people who are on a given project are the ones who are, are tasked with, really narrowing that list down. And that has a lot to do with getting to know the client and really understanding like what's going to work for them, what's not, what they're going to want to see. I mean, we use names to test out a lot of things. Um, you know, it's like the same way that, uh, if you ask someone like, Hey, what kind of music do you listen to? Um, it's a bad question, right? Cause it yields bad answers. Mm -hmm. uh, people say like, Oh, anything but country or I'd like a little bit of anything or, you know, something like that. But if you play a song and say, well, okay, what do you like about this song? Like, how does it hit you? What does it remind you of? Um, you get good information. And so, you know, at least, you know, especially early in the process, um, that's really what we're trying to do with naming is like presenting a, a wide enough array where we can really get good feedback on specific options in order to narrow our own focus. Um, and so, it's an incredibly subjective process, but we do everything we can to make it more objective for people, you know, keep it focused on the audience, 
make it so people are, aren't just kind of having that first gut reaction to work. That's mm-hmm. just kind of like, I like it. I don't like it that everybody is going to have. And so if everybody has it, it's not really a strong basis for making a decision just by like kind of show of hands, which one's the best option. Um, so, you know, we like to have objectives going in where we're sort of saying, okay, what are the most important things to communicate? Um, and so we're really trying to assess names based on those criteria then obviously all the kind of legal cultural tests that we, we run them through after. Um, but, uh, you know, you need to have some sort of objective criteria going into it. Otherwise it's just kind of like, you know, competitive opinions, uh, which isn't really a good environment for creative work. Right. Okay. Now here, here's a, here's a, maybe a difficult question, but what's a good name worth? Like how do you begin to price some of this stuff? Um, you know, a lot of it just has to do with the variables of a project. Um, you know, I, I think, um, at like on the base level, the question of what a good name is worth, I think has a lot to do with the, the kind of situation that you're in, how competitive your environment is, how strong your offering is. Um, you know, how important is it for you to get off the ground quickly? Um, because those are areas where names bring a ton of value. Um, you know, in terms of like pricing and and kind of like how we approach stuff like that, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the client organization and, and what that, you know, back to that kind of bureaucracy and like, you know, structure of a business, how many different layers of approval are we going through? How many countries are we testing this name in? You know, like all of those kind of practical realities have serious effect on the amount of work that we need to do in order to present quality options. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about working with, you know, um, like two people who are, who are, you know, starting something new, uh, who aren't particularly concerned about, you know, um, passing like cultural screening, uh, in Asia and, you, you know, uh, don't need a pure.com then like that process is, can be pretty efficient. Um, <laughs> you know, once you start to include global clearance, you know, a certain level like trademarking in like five different classes, which is like kind of how the USPTO organizes these things. Um, and, you know, had multiple layers of, of kind of decision making, then those processes take us a lot more time. Um, and so that's kind of how, how projects become expensive. Um, but you know, there's a, there's definitely a, a, a quick and easy way and a, a long and hard way. Mm. So for some of the more difficult naming projects where it includes all the things that you're talking about in terms of global clearance, cultural, uh, checking, uh, all that kind of stuff. How long does that process take from beginning to end, typically? I mean, it really depends on what you're defining as the endpoint, um, because you know there's always a, a handoff in there to a client's legal counsel, right? Mm-hmm. That we're not the ones who um, you know who registered the name, because mm-hmm. if we did, it would be a conflict of interest with our clients. Um, that's, you know, the, the client's legal counsel's responsibility. So at some point there's a handoff there, um, you know, depending on if you were including all of those things, it might take us, you know, say six weeks, seven weeks to get to that handoff point. 
Um, sometimes it happens a lot faster, but then, you know, once it's in their lawyer's hands, it, it really just has to do with, you know, their workload and, and kind of everything like that. We have, um, some clients with very efficient legal teams and some who are totally, you know, and understandably, uh, overstretched. Right. So, um, you know, as with everything, it's, it's kind of a collaborative effort and we just want to make sure that we're, we're up on like what's happening and we stay engaged during those parts of the process so things just don't kind of like slip into the ether. I see. So it's actually a little faster than I thought. So you're saying it could be somewhere in the six to eight week range before you hand it off to the legal team? Yeah, and you know, with smaller client teams and uh, and kind of less screening, um, you know, our, our typical process is is really a lot closer to four weeks. Um, so mm. we're you know we're pretty efficient, and I, I think we built it that way because we had to because everybody tries to name on their own first, and then they run into some serious hurdle, mm-hmm. um, and then you know. Uh, once once they run into that serious hurdle, then everything's a time crunch. Right. Uh, I see. <laughs> so we're just kind of dealing with it from there, and and we needed to build our process to to kind of factor in those realities. Mm-hmm. One thing that I got from the book too that you kind of give as a tip is uh, present the names in context. It helps people understand that. Now, when you yeah. say in context, I assume put on a billboard, put on a shirt, put it on lots of different things so that they can kind of get a sense for it. Is that what you mean in the book? Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't, like, we want to make it as real as possible. Um, And I think this applies to all creative work, that you want to show a client as close to the reality of of kind of what they could be dealing with as possible, because I think as creative people, a lot of times we forget that when you're not dealing with creative people, that they have trouble kind of, like, taking an identity that you designed and, like, applying it to all the situations where it, it might exist. Um, same thing goes with the name that, you know, showing someone a word on a sheet of paper doesn't convey value, um, you know, and, and so you need to put the work into situations where the client would come in contact with it on a regular basis, because that's how it's going to feel most real for them. And I think clients need that degree of like familiarity and, and like realness to, um, feel comfortable enough to make these decisions. That makes perfect sense. And it's something that you don't necessarily learn in, in design school where you kind of make a mark and then you just leave it alone. And yeah. what, what you learn is the bigger the clients, the bigger the budgets, the more you have to help them understand and kind of feel that imagination gap. And the better off you do that, the less pushback you're going to get. And that's just to save your own sanity, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I think design school kind of yields this like, uh, you know, you think you're doing all of these like graphic standards manuals, like, you know, Massimo Vignelli style. And it's just like that uh, it gets to a point where you need to do those things. Um, but that's not the kind of initial selling of the work that has a lot more to do with making it feel real for the client. Then you get to, you know, the kind of uh, style guides and the do's and the don'ts and, and kind of everything like that. Um, I think when I was in design school, for some reason, I thought that like, oh, well, like that's how you present an identity. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, the harsh reality of the corporate world has taught me otherwise. Right. You have to make it a little sexy for them, right? You have to kind of yeah. capture their imagination. And the more you are able to do that, the more likely they're going to say, yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, 100%. I, I would love to hear a little bit about your next book project. You've been oh, talking yeah, sure. about it, teasing us a little bit. What's it about? 
Um, so it's, uh, it's called Run Studio Run. Um, it's about how to run a small creative agency. When I kind of took over at, at 100 Monkeys, I, I felt very confident in, um, you know, my creative skill set and like what I needed to do to execute good work um, and, and sell it. But what I knew basically next to nothing about <laughs> was how to run a business. Um, and, you know, uh, that caused a decent bit of anxiety for me. And I dealt with it mostly by reading and learning as much as I possibly could about how to run a business. Um, and I kind of like really honed in on that aspect of it. Um, and you know, as someone who's running a business, I think it's just, it's really important to get the business side of it down even if you're in a creative field and it might be easy to just rely on, you know, your, your creative skill, um, and, and just sort of think that the work will stand on its own when you're running a business and have people working for you, you know, you need to make sure that your house is in order. Um, and I think a lot of creative people really kind of look at the business side of things as like a second order activity, something that's like not that important and not worth talking about. Um, and I, I just don't think that's the case. And I think that, you know, if you're looking to grow your studio, if you're looking to get more work, then you need to really approach the business end of things as seriously as, you know, most people are approaching like typography or letting or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's that's why I wrote it. Um, and, and sort of I took everything I learned from applying these things at 100 Monkeys and figuring out like, well, if I'm reading a book about how to run a management consulting firm, like what applies to the creative industry? Because I really didn't there weren't a lot of books out there about like how to actually run a creative shop. There's a ton of stuff out there about like how to come up with cool work. Um, but nothing really like dealing with the, the blocking and tackling the, the kind of day to day of like, you know, how to run a shop, how to motivate your team, how to hit goals, how to set goals, you know, everything like that. That's great. I, I think people that are creative quote unquote, whether you're a writer or a designer, you tend to shy or sh you know move away from the business aspect because like, it makes you roll your eyes or whatever. Yeah. Or you, you get that glazed look on your face. Now, for sure, I think part of it is is it the the fear of math, the, the <laughs> idea that you don't want to talk to other people in negotiations, and we're fragile yeah. snowflakes, right? We we enter in a room with another business person and we feel like, oh gosh, here comes the tension, here comes that hand to hand combat, and, yep. and then we rather just return to our studios and look at our computer screen. So that yeah. is a big problem. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, the, uh, the history of this is like kind of strewn with artists who have given control of their business over to like quote business people. Um, and like that almost always ends in tears. Um, so, you know, I just want to put people in a situation where like they feel confident in the business that they're running, you know, they're negotiating with their goals front and center. Um, and just kind of, making people really comfortable in, in those situations um, so that uh, they can kind of um, get their business skills up to like somewhere in the vicinity of, of uh, where their creative skills are. Wow, that would be amazing. It <laughs> truly would be amazing. So when is the launch date or when, when, it, when does this get uh, into the hands of the people? So we're, uh, we're actually, this is like a first, I mean, I'm still doing it with a, with extracurricular, but we're, uh, we are doing it as a, a Kickstarter initially, um, which is something that I have not done before. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm doing a, a ton of research on, um, and, and figuring out, 
but you know, the with naming, it's like the the kind of the audience is like fairly specific. This is kind of branching into a, a slightly broader audience, and because of that, like trying to assess demand is is really difficult. Um, and so, you know, Kickstarter is a, a really good way to do that. Um, and so we're looking for that to, uh, to go up, um, you know, sometime during the, the holiday season. Um, we'll have a, a website up too, which is runstudiorun.com, um, you know, where we'll have kind of more information, the ability to kind of sign up for, um, for updates. Uh, so that's kind of a, that's the plan. And uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Um, yeah. And like a lot of, uh, you know, one important thing to me with the book was that like, just cause kind of, I, I run my studio this way. I, I don't want to kind of be the be all end all of like how everybody should do things. So I interviewed a lot of other people, um, you know, who, who run, um, you know, great studios, uh, get their input, see how they do thing, uh, things. Talk to like Armin and Brioni from, uh, under consideration and Aaron Draplin and, uh, Kate Bingham and Burt and, um, you know, uh, Tom and Patricia from manual in San Francisco and like a ton of, uh, different, you know, very, uh, high quality creatives, um, to just get their take on, you know, what's most important to them, how they run their shops, everything like that. Mm -hmm. Now, will this be designed or produced in a way that's similar to the don't call it that book, or is it totally a different format? Um, it's, uh, it's still kind of a workbook in a way. I mean, I am asking like very pointed questions that I want people to come up with their own answers for and that I think they need in order to kind of move forward. So it's it's structured similarly for sure. It's a lot bigger. Um, you know, don't call it that's like a pretty quick read. This right. is, you know, it's probably like at least twice as long as that. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot more, you know, nuanced to, to dig into. Um, but uh, yeah, it will be, uh, it will be structured, um, fairly similarly. It's actually being designed, um, by, uh, Moniker, a, a design studio in, in San Francisco that we work a lot with as well. And you said this is going to come out, is this like December ish? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, kind of when we're aiming to, to launch the, the Kickstarter, um, and right. then you know, how, how that process works. But like, we're, we're pretty dialed in terms of like, you know, the book's already written, um, and you know, and, and, you know, we'll be pretty far into like editing and design. So it's not going to be like one of these things that, uh, takes forever to ship afterwards, but, right. um, you know, still needs to actually get produced. That, yeah. That's good to hear because some of these Kickstarter things, as much as I want to support them, like nine months later, I already forgot about everything. And it's, and then finally like, Oh, we're still working on it. So yeah. And so it. we're, we're also working hard to get like an early edition, like an early digital edition done. Mm -hmm. um, so that if you get it, like you'll actually be able to, um, you know, have a digital version of the book. Oh, that's really smart. I like that. Okay. Well, when, when you're ready, let us know and we'll send it out to our audience because I'm pretty sure with the community that we speak to, the whole idea of getting your business skills up to where your creative skills are is a really important issue for us and it's totally t dialed into our audience so I'll, I'll be more than happy to help share and promote the kickstarter campaign i appreciate that chris thanks yeah i mean uh eli i appreciate you jumping on the show is there anything else that you want to talk about Jeez. um oh i guess no, I mean, I think uh, I, I think we covered it. Okay. Um, yeah, just uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I think naming is just kind of a new thing for a lot of uh, a lot of designers. Maybe more more and more people are kind of like getting, uh, you know, to a point where they are like working with naming people or something like that. Um, and yeah, we just uh, we love working with designers and at, like quite honestly need to because we have zero design capability or functionality. Um, and so um, yeah, we just uh, just kind of good to to know that uh know that we're out here i guess yeah it's a good first of all the book is a great resource if you guys are thinking about naming your own studio because that's something that comes up a lot people will say should yeah. i make up a name or should i just call it my last name and associates or something so if you're just naming for yourself pick up the book but if you're in that position where you're a design firm and you're moving up the decision making tree and you're getting closer <laughs> to the executives and you're doing discovery and strategy and they're launching a new product uh, there's probably room for collaboration to go both ways. You need designers and we need good people who can come up with names. For sure. And hey, to answer that that specific question of like, should I just name it after myself? Um, don't do that. Don't name it after yourself. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a bad idea. Um, and it's a bad idea because you're limiting your options moving down the road. You do a, you know, put a ton of energy into like growing your business, growing the brand, getting people to recognize it. And then what happens if one day you want to sell or, you know, you want to retire and hand the business off to someone else? It's like you're immediately downgrading the, you know, the value of your business if your name's on the building once you're out of the equation. Um, and so don't do that. Uh, you, might, you might think that, that, well, people know me and like, they'll recognize, okay, well, the people who know you will know if you name your business something that that's your business. Um, that happens all the time and is a very normal thing. If people already know you, they're, they're fully capable of making that step. Whereas if people don't know you and get introduced to your brand fresh, uh, you know, <laughs> naming it after yourself just closes down your options down the road. So, uh, you know, save yourself some time and money and hopefully sell your business for more money down the road by not naming it after yourself. Mm, great advice. I forgot. So I have strong opinions on that. You know, I, I, and I love that you have a strong opinion because the world's full of people who can't get out the fence. And I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I know what the, the, the question we probably have to end this all on is what kind of feedback have you gotten from publishing the book? I've gotten great feedback. Um, I I really appreciate all the feedback that I got. I mean, I, I think one of the 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 main thing that turned the first edition into the second edition was the specific feedback I got from people who got the first edition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the main things I heard coming out of that was like, we want more vignettes, like more stories of people who you know who have named. Um, you know, who have named their businesses. And one of the great things is that after doing the first edition, people contacted me and told me like, hey, I use your book and I came up with this name and this is the process. And then I got an opportunity to interview them, um, you know, and sort of incorporate that into the second edition. Um, so the feedback is is awesome. Um, and I, I love that, positive or negative. It's just like, you know, all I'm trying to do is make, make it better. So, um, you know, hearing from people is uh, the main way to do that. That's great. Because I was wondering when I was reading the book, how the heck did you get those stories? And did, were these fabricated or, or did you conduct some giant user survey? But it looks like the first book was your user survey. In, in, yeah, it, in essence, it totally right? was. I, I did not have, you know, I, I, I really tried like initially, well, maybe I can get like a couple people to do it. But then it's just like I, it's, 
it was too complicated. Um, but you know, having that first edition out there, like really made it possible for, you know, for me to hear all these stories. And I, I, I do love hearing like what people come up with and, and you know, what they name their business or product after reading the book. It's really awesome to hear. I know exactly what you mean because we make worksheets ourselves and I try to get my team, like, Hey, go through this, like try it. And yeah, it just takes too long. And it's like, no, let me just release it. And then the people will tell us what we need to do for version two. Just yeah. give it to the people. Right. Sure. Get it out. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you doing this call with us and yep. sharing your knowledge. Uh, again, you guys go pick up. Don't call it that. It's written by Eli Altman. Look out for his Kickstarter on Run Studio Run, which is going to drop probably in December sometime. I'm Eli Altman, and you're listening to the future. The future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future. Thank you.